Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. I often wait until I'm into the sermon before preaching the scripture lesson, but today I'm going to be really deep into the sermon before I read the scripture lesson, so be patient. Let us pray. Holy God, we ask to hear your word. Help us hear its joy, even with the difficulty and pain that joy often contains. Amen. Prosperity gospel is not gospel. Well, maybe there can be a version that speaks of spiritual prosperity and life finding its fullness in God that can get my head nodding. But I'm speaking of the prosperity gospel you often hear from famous and wealthy preachers of megachurches. They may say a lot of good and inspiring things with which I could agree, but I'm speaking to two promises they often make. While it's hard to argue against their effectiveness in increasing membership and revenue, there are two promises that are made in the name of Christ that Christ himself never made. First, they promise, or used to promise when building their ministries and fortunes, financial prosperity for those who are generous and giving to the pastor's church or ministry. The preacher's wealth is presented as evidence that the promise holds true. I saw an interview with Joyce Myers where she came right out and said that the mansions, jet, luxury cars, and expensive boat owned either by her or provided to her by her ministry are evidence that God blesses those who bless God. Financial prosperity was not promised by Jesus. Uh, Sure, there is a psychology of generosity that makes sense. Generosity and financial planning often go hand in hand, and one reason is that generous people would like to be more generous in the future. Also, I know that there are folks who are good at leveraging gifts where giving is a sort of investment to gain access or swing deals, I'm not even criticizing that if someone is helped and no one is harmed, but most of us don't have those kind of resources or opportunities to even worry about it. But again, speaking for the gospel, financial prosperity is not an assured blessing that comes of obedience and faith and giving. I think most of us who are in this sanctuary or who are joining us online understand that. But a second promise made by the prosperity gospel is more subtle, sounds more reasonable, and can be more seductive for people like me. The second promised benefit of faith is happiness. 
This promise is seductive because it easily attaches itself to what needs to be said about faith and the church if the church is acting anything like the body of Christ it is called to be. We in the church speak of scriptures that tell of blessings coming to those who know their need for God. We speak of the God of Exodus who hears the cries of slaves and delivers them. The God of Deuteronomy who in a particular age cares for widows and orphans and sojourners this patriarchal age, cares for those who are most vulnerable and the easiest to abandon or ignore or exploit. The God of the Gospels, the God who in Christ feeds the hungry, heals the cripple, forgives the sinner, and promises a coming day when all will be reconciled. The God of Paul who promises salvation from sin, from death. The God of the Psalms who calls us to rejoice, give thanks and praise, and know the joy of our salvation. It doesn't seem like All that much of a gospel in logic to think that a God like that makes us happy. Don't you think that the slaves were happy when they were delivered from bondage? Only then we remember the long years in the wilderness where they had to learn lessons of freedom that were often learned in hard and painful ways. Don't you think that the woman who was saved by Jesus from being stoned for her sins was happy? Yeah. She was, I know, but we remember Jesus telling her to sin no more because life was going to remain a challenge. Don't you think that those who heard God's voice speak to them and were called by God were happy? And then we remember what the prophets endured and the difficulties faced by the disciples. Don't you think that Paul was happy when he spoke of joy? And then we remember that he wrote from a prison cell and eventually was executed. I'm not saying that happiness and faith are mutually exclusive. I mean, I am often happy because of my faith, happy because of how how it shaped my family life, how it shaped my identity, my place in life, my purpose, how it provided me with you, a community that cares for me how it gave me hope and gratitude, and many, many times I've had a blast in church. But as much as I wanted it to be true, especially as a child who wanted all life to be like my best times at play and with family, or being successful at something and being applauded, or even at church when worship caused my spirit to lift or study brought an insight that thrilled me. I'm a little weird. I love study. It just isn't in the cards for us always to be happy. There is nothing wrong with being happy in and of itself, but there is also nothing wrong with being unhappy in and of itself. The gospel doesn't promise happiness. The promise is for a life with God. And that comes with an uh uh-oh as much as an oh boy. In fact, sometimes being unhappy is a gift from God. Being unhappy is a necessary and healthy state of being so something can be learned or something can be healed or something can be surrendered. 
We grieve when we lose a loved one or when some dream has to be abandoned because it's just not in the cards or some assumption about how life is supposed to be has to be dropped. And bad things happen to people we care about and sometimes between people who care about each other. And it is certainly okay if news of some natural disaster or evidence of something broken in our community or news of something that happens to someone we care about gets us upset. Being unhappy plays an important role in emotional growth and mental health. And perhaps the cruelty of the false promise of happiness is felt most by those who feel that they have failed because they have not achieved some kind of expected standard of bliss, say in their marriage, or it has taken longer than others tell them it should take to get over a loss. Or maybe they simply struggle with what 10% of Americans struggle with each year, depression. When happiness is the promised blessing of faith, then being unhappy is just one more thing to feel guilty about, isn't it? Here's the problem. We speak of God's blessings, and then we confuse happiness with what the Bible would call joy. They are not the same, at least as far as Scripture is concerned. In the general worldview of the Bible, happiness is an emotion that is contained to the individual. The circumstances of the moment suit what that person wants, and that person is happy. And in this way, even Nazis could be happy. Even abusers could be happy. Even those who scam the elderly of their money can be happy. Because as an emotion, happiness can be felt by anyone. I say this fully aware of the studies that statistically show a positive relationship between virtue and happiness. These studies back up the claim that those who on average live in a way that they feel is right or good are more often happy than those who on average live in a way that they believe is wrong. Shame, guilt, and regret eventually weigh on most people, maybe not narcissists, but most people, and over time can degrade one's ability to be happy. But I'm saying that because happiness is a human emotion, everyone can experience it. Sometimes the biggest grin can be seen on the face of evil. Joy, as the Bible presents it, is different because it's not an emotion. It is something more transcendent, and that makes it a little bit more difficult for me to describe. I would even say that it's more spiritual because it is something that one cannot have. It has to be something that is shared with others. It cannot be captured in a moment, but it's something that flows. It's something that can be known on the journey even more than in a destination. And it's something where the delight comes because of sensing some greater good. The novelist J.D. Salinger tried to paint a picture of the difference by describing happiness as a solid and joy as a fluid. An artist might describe joy as the beauty of a symphony that includes discordant notes 
or the beauty of a painting where the shadows are as essential as the light. Or let's consider how Paul might describe it. Listen to this passage from Philippians, and I want you to listen to how Paul speaks of joy. If then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in fully accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped and hung on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, assuming human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Did you hear how the passage began? Paul does not speak of individual happiness. He speaks of something that is shared. First of all, shared in Christ. He speaks of this wonderful consolation that comes from being loved, from loving. He speaks of knowing that we're not alone and having this partnership in the Spirit. He speaks of sympathy we receive from each other when we are not happy. He speaks of affection, which is really to say he speaks of love, and we all know the hardship and pain that a deep love can bring. And he speaks of one more thing that will make his joy complete. To make his joy complete, the Philippian Christians are to put the good of others before their own selfish desires. Don't look to be happy by putting your own needs first, he tells them, but look to the interests of others. Be in the same mind frame as Christ, who did not seek the happiness of equal status with God, safe and protected from harm and from death, remaining above human condition with all of its troubles, temptations, and cares. No, he emptied himself, placing the needs of humanity before his own. Now, Paul never uses the word happiness, and maybe I'm stretching it a bit to suggest that Jesus is sacrificing the happiness of staying at home with God, but joining instead himself to the troubles and challenges of human life. But consider one more verse that speaks of joy, this one coming from the 12th chapter of Hebrews, when the preacher says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God, who for the joy that was set before him endured 
For joy, one endures, one suffers, one sacrifices, one places the needs of others before one's own. For joy, Jesus is willing to endure what surely can only be described as the unhappy experience of the cross. I assure you, this is not a biblical bait and switch. This is not saying that up is down, left is right, good is bad, and dark is light. No, no, no. Please embrace happiness. You feel at any time, so long as your happiness doesn't come at the immoral experience of misery by others. What Philippians is saying is more of what David Brooks is trying to say in his book, The Second Mountain. Brooks speaks to the joy that he has come to know better, that most of us come to know better in the second half of our lives. He celebrates the first mountain to be overcome in life, which is more about individual achievement, fulfillment, and success, and yes, is more about our being happy and fulfilled. We all need to explore who we are as individuals and what we're about and how far we can go, and we often are happy when I climb up that mountain, meets success. But regardless of how successful one is in climbing that first mountain, there comes a time for most people, and he would say the truly fortunate people, when we realize that that mountain is not the mountain that matters the most. There's a second mountain. And climbing that second mountain means finding what Brooks describes as joy. It is realizing truly that there is something greater than oneself, that there is beauty in life beyond the beauty that one can find on one's own while living, that there is goodness that matters beyond one's own desires and needs. It's this realization, frankly, that comes to most of us when we realize that we're mortal, we're not going to live forever, and we come to terms with it and find that life is still worth living. And so one climbs the second mountain, not just for oneself, but even more now for others, and ultimately, really, for God. One still enjoys what one enjoys, good food and drink, quiet vacation on the beach or an exciting vacation on the slopes, time alone doing what one enjoys doing only by oneself, certainly embracing happiness as it comes. But more and more one yearns for, one finds delight in, and gives one's life to what I hope hasn't become a cliche, the greater good. One helps build a community, not just because Family and friends are needed. I need that community for myself. But now, because everybody needs community, everybody needs this sense of belonging. And strangely, living to help bring about blessings that one personally may not be able to see holds this strange thrill that it's going to happen for others even when it doesn't happen for you that children are going to be educated and you won't even know their names, that poor can be fed and 
or given housing or given a chance where adults can be loved and somehow getting it into their heads and hearts that God's love is reaching not only out to them, but now can be shown through them. Because what makes life worth living now is more other-oriented than selfish, more about the well-being of the world than living well, Brooks describes it as this moral joy. Moral joy is not about your prospering. Moral joy is about prospering. Raising the possibility of knowing moral joy, really, that's the only authentic gospel pitch for your being generous. And the only legitimate gospel pitch for you to be generous with the church when you see the church being the community that promotes being generous with God's love for the sake of others rather than for the sake of the church itself. I'm going to finish with a shameless but heartfelt personal pitch for you supporting this congregation. I think I'm speaking for many of you when I say this about myself. I'm usually a happy guy, but I'm often unhappy. But I live with the sense that life is not meaningless and that love does matter. I also live with the sense that I'm a part of a congregation that is not only meeting my own need to know that I'm loved by God, that not only provides me opportunities to learn and to worship, but also, and I would say especially, because it is a community that shares God's love and makes a difference in the world for others. I thank God for the church that put me first when I was a child. But as Paul has said, there may be a place for being that child but then that, there comes that time for being an adult and putting aside the childish ways. Now more than ever, this church serves me because I know that it's serving others. It is serving my granddaughter, placing her first. It is serving you. It is serving children at the Highland Park School and at the Presbyterian Community Center. It is serving folks that I will never meet and in ways that I will never hear about. It is serving a future that I personally will not see. Do you share in that kind of appreciation for this community? If you do, that sharing in that is moral joy. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.